<laughs> I'm good. I'm on. You can hear me? Okay. Well, good morning. <laughs> um, as we get into this this morning, um, Pastor Marshall is actually going to be starting. So this is going to be one of the last times that you hear me on a regular basis. Um, and I hope, um, thinking back on the different sermons, at least, that I've given, um, that I've given um, different ways of looking at scripture. Um, I feel like when I come up here, one of my jobs is to teach. It's not just to preach, but it's to teach. Um, and I have found that looking at scripture, there's so many different ways to look at it. And in some of the ways, um, just figuring out how to look at it is what gives us a lot of information and tells us a lot about God and really brings the scripture to life. Um, so this morning, um, in looking at our scripture, um, I want us to actually go back to middle school a little bit <laughs> and a middle school lesson. <laughs> Well, and I'm going to teach you through it. I'm going to walk you through it. But I'm going to remind you of something that you learned back in middle school. For me, it was in seventh grade and in Miss Conley's English class. Miss Conley was a very strict, um, very nurturing uh, English teacher who was one of my favorites. But um, in her class, and this is where I want you to go back, um, we learned about how to make a good story. What elements actually go into making a good story? Um, so what we learned, at least what I learned back in seventh grade, was that every good story has a setting, it has characters, it has a plot, and that plot has some kind of rising action that goes up, that then hits a climax of a conflict. And then on the other side of that, there's this falling action that is how the characters are now different. And then you come to this resolution. So every good story has these components where it goes up and then it, it comes back down. Um, some stories are very character-driven. Rochelle and I right now are going through the Anne of Green Gables series. Um, when I was her age, I found them extraordinarily boring um, because they're so character-driven, but she loves them. Um, and I'm actually enjoying them now because I understand that they are character-driven. The, the whole story is about these lively people that Anne comes into context with. And it's about the, the people and the events that take place with these people. Um, the setting, even, in those stories could be a character in and of itself. We have other stories that are much more plot-driven. 
Um, if you've ever read a John Grisham novel or a James Patterson novel, those are very plot-focused, heavy plot-focused, um, that will suck you in with this huge conflict that usually comes to this climax at about 3 in the morning. Um, when you can't put them down, you're like sucked in, and you hit that climax, and you're like, oh my gosh, now I can't even go to sleep because I've been just drawn in to this conflict. Um, some other stories will often have these like underlying themes that come out. You could have metaphors or lessons that you get from them. Sometimes those lessons are critiques about modern day society. Um, our characters in these stories, we usually consider them the heroes. The heroes that are faced with some kind of conflict. And that conflict, they have to go through a conflict in order to come out on the other side. And sometimes those conflicts are a man versus man conflict. Sometimes those conflicts are a man versus himself kind of conflict. And sometimes it's man versus nature conflict. But depend, no matter what the conflict is, they've overcome that conflict and they are now a changed person on the other side of that conflict. So good stories have the setting, the characters, a plot. They've got some kind of conflict. And that then comes back to a resolution where they're now a changed person. And the story is then resolved. So when I approach our passage this morning, I'm looking at it as though it's a good story, because it is a good story. So I want you to also listen for those parts of the story as we get into it. Our passage today is Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. I'll give you a moment to get there. I'm reading from the N. IMV, I think that's the N, the ASB up there. Oh, you get it? Oh, good. And I might butcher some of these names, but forgive me. From Trosis, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Nepalis. From there, we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household, I'm sorry, when she and the members of the household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, 
we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by, for her owners by fortune telling. This girl showed Paul and the rest of us shouting, I'm sorry, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men's are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope was making money they was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into a marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept the practice, to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon re receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before him, them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. 
Then they left. So that's our story this morning. If you were to tell your story, is what I want to think you to think about when we're listening to this. If you were to tell your story. We're starting with the setting of this story. The main setting here is Philippi. Our heroes, they start out their adventure, adventure in Trosis, which is in present-day Turkey, and they sail across the Aegean Sea for the island of Samothrace, where they could actually dock for the night. And then they go on to the next day of Nepalis. From there, they travel inward to Philippi. Now, we don't know anything about their journey on that ship, which tells me there probably wasn't much of a good story going on on the journey. Um, But we do pick up on the story in Philippi. And what we read is that Philippi is a Roman colony And it's a leading city of that district in Macedonia. This Roman colony of Philippi had actually a major road that went right through it. And that road went right on to Rome. So this is a major highway going through that city. At this point in time, Philippi had a very small Jewish community a very small Jewish community. They didn't even have a temple or a place of worship. So where they most often gathered was um, at the river, which lets me know, and in most cities, rivers are kind of the central. Rita, hello. <laughs> um, the uh, rivers are a centralized part of the city. So here we've got the Jewish, very small Jewish community coming together in the center of the city to pray. And our heroes, we learn from the story, they actually stay in Philippi for a few days. So our setting is Philippi, a city. We first meet them as they're traveling there, um, and they're going to stay there for several days. We don't know how long several is, but they're there for several days. The second part are characters. So if you notice when we started reading this in verse 11, it uses the term we. We actually is in reference to three different people. That we starts out with Paul. Now we know Paul. Paul, who's formerly known as Saul, he's a Jewish man. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Pharisee. Um, He was born in Tarsus, thus he was a Roman citizen. This is very important for the later part of the story. After his encounter with the resurrected Jesus, um, he devotes his life to spreading the gospel. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. Um, And in this point of Acts, he's actually on his second missionary journey. And this is where we start the story for him. Our second character of the we um, is Silas. Now, Silas is also a Roman citizen. Again, important for the last part of the story. He's uh, known as a leading member of what we call the Christian church, but the church in Jerusalem. Um, Previously, we know that he was sent to Antioch 
to greet the Gentiles who had then become part of the Christian church. Now, the, the term Christian church isn't being used just yet, um, but we know that as the Christian church. So he, converted, he um, welcomed all these Gentiles to Christianity. And now he's known as a companion of Paul on this missionary journey. Our third person in our passage is the person who is actually writing Acts. And that third person is Luke. Luke is a physician who does become a companion of Paul. And we know Luke because he wrote the gospel of Luke. And he then writes Acts for his friend Theophilus. He then actually witnesses these events that are taking place in our passage of Acts today. So he has inserted himself into the Acts story itself. Now those three, I would say, are what we call the main characters of the story. They're the ones that we are following through our passage. But there's also a few other characters that they come in contact with that I think are the important people in this story. First, we have Lydia. Lydia is Greek. She's not Jewish. She is Greek. And what we know of her is that she's actually a very wealthy woman. She has earned a lot of money by dealing and selling purple cloth. She has a very large household, um, and then presumably a large house to go along with that household. Um, and she invites our heroes into her house to stay, which lets us know her house was pretty big. She couldn't invite three men to come stay with her in the midst of all of these household members that she also has. So she's a pretty well-off woman. And our heroes encounter her when she's at a Jewish place of prayer. Hold that in thought. Second, we have a slave girl. She is unnamed. We just know her as a slave girl. And we know that she is filled with the spirit of divination, which is fortune-telling. She is a slave to men who use her for her gift. They are taking advantage of her. And where our heroes come and find her is that she's actually following them on the street as they are going to their prayer time. We'll come back to her, too. Third, we have a jailer. This jailer is a working man, obviously, and his job is to work at the jail. He is the one who is in charge of the innermost cells, the innermost uh, secu high-security prisoners. And we learn later in the story that he's also a family man. So keep, keep an eye on him. And we also, because every good story has a conflict, we also have the antagonists in our story here. We have the men who actually own that slave girl. We have the crowd. 
we have the magistrates who order Paul and Silas to be jailed in the first place and then freed. And we have a final character in our story. And that final character in our story is God. Although we don't see the human representation of God in this passage, we certainly see the effects of God in, uh, and God's hand in everything that happens here. So the third part of a good story is the plot. And this is where our story really gets good. That first part of the plot is that rising action. It's what's going up to that climax. And here's where I think Lydia is where our rising action comes in. And the rising action is also the part that draws you into the story. It's the part where you start looking at the time going, can I stay up to read? I, I, maybe I should just stay up a little bit more because now I'm pulled into that story. So we've got Lydia, the Greek. She's at a Jewish place of worship. And we know that she was a worshiper of God. That is the title that's been given to her. And it likely means that she is there quite often attending prayer at the river. Now, because she's Greek, she's probably not sitting in the midst of everybody. She's sitting on the outside. And we know she's sitting on the outside with the rest of the women. Paul, Silas, and Luke actually sit down and start speaking with her. Uh, this is my imagination, but I imagine they sit down and say, hello, how are you? What brings you here? And she says, well, I'm here for prayer. You know? And Paul and Silas then start up a conversation with her. And they start up a conversation with her and then start telling her about Jesus. And that's why Paul and Silas are there, is to talk about Jesus. And what we read in verse 14, Luke says, Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was listening. And here's where that character of God comes in and shows up. In verse 14, we read, The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Lucas picked that song this morning. Open our, the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart so I, may I, that I may see you. The Lord shows up with Lydia and opens her heart. I even imagine God there going, okay, here's your heart opened. You know, kind of waving his hand at her and opening up that heart. And her heart is opened to the gospel of Jesus. She responds to that gospel by getting baptized. And not only did she get baptized, but she had her whole household baptized as well. Their hearts were open too. Her sins then are washed away. Now she also appears to be a very persuasive, powerful person who has enough um, power to convince Paul, Silas, and Luke to stay with her at her home. 
Some versions in verse 15 says she persuaded us. Um, But what I read another version, it said she prevailed upon us. (laughs) She's a very persuasive woman. (laughs) So here you have this rising action, the beginning of being pulled into the story. We've got Lydia. Her heart is opened. She is a worshiper. And she's now believing in Jesus. And because of that, she is pulling Silas, Luke, and Paul in to stay at her house. So now I'm hooked and I'm staying up late reading this story. Our next part is the conflict itself. And this is where I think the story gets really, really good. Paul and Silas's interaction with the slave girl is where that conflict actually begins. As I said before, they encounter a slave girl on the path to the place of prayer. And this must have happened multiple times because it said she would cry out at them for many days. So they saw her repeatedly there. She would follow them and shout, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Jesus encountered spirits like this as well. Spirits who identified Jesus as the Son of God. In Matthew 8, 28 to 30, we have the demon-possessed men who asked Jesus, what do you want from us, Son of God? Jesus decided to take those demon spirits, send them out of the men and into a group of pigs nearby. And those pigs then ran into the water and were drowned. Now, one thing that strikes me about our slave girl is that the spirit, and even with the the demon-possessed men with Jesus, even the spirits know who God is. They know that these men, Paul, Silas, and, well, Paul and Silas in this point, Paul and Silas serve the most high God. Even the spirits know that. Another thing that strikes me about this poor slave girl is that she's following them. She follows them along the path. And it makes me wonder if that human part of her, not the spirit, but the human part of her is following because she does know these are the men who know how to be saved. That human part of her, I think, wants to be saved. Now, what we know from the story is that Paul gets annoyed with this. He, or some of the passages read, he becomes troubled with this. And he gets to that point after many days where he then says to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you, come out of her. And here's where the character of God shows up again. Because, as we read in verse 18, at that moment, the Spirit left her. Now, here's the conflict. 
because of this action by Paul and Silas, the men who owned this poor, unnamed slave girl, they get very upset. They are no longer able to make money off of her. They are no longer able to exploit that gift of her. And so they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the magistrates and accuse them of advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. At this point in time, Judaism is a recognized religion in Rome, but Christianity is not. So Paul and Silas just use the name of Jesus Christ to exercise the spirit out of this girl. Therefore, they were using an unrecognized religion in Rome which is why the magistrates could bring them forth and say they, or the, the men could bring them forth in front of the magistrates and say they're doing something wrong. So the magistrates have Paul and Silas flogged, stripped, beaten, and thrown in prison. But they're not just thrown in prison, they're actually thrown into the inner cell, which is reserved for those who need extra security. They're in the inner part. They're not coming out. And their feet were shackled. I think this part of the story is where we're starting to hit that climax. We're there. They're in jail now. They're in the innermost cell and they're stuck. But we know that they're not stuck because we're going to hit the climax of that story In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and to other prisoners, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Here we have listening again. And God shows up. God shows up in a huge way. God shows up by giving them a violent earthquake. Now, living in Southern California, we know about earthquakes. And it's not just a little earthquake. It is an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. And this earthquake happens in the midst of Paul and Silas singing and praying. This earthquake causes the doors of the prison to fly open. And everyone's, not just Paul and Silas's, chains come loose. Now, in my mind, this has to be at least a six on the Richter scale. Because it shakes the entire foundation, opens the doors, causes the chains to come off of them. And we have the jailer who was asleep, who wakes up to find in the aftermath of the earthquake that the prison doors are open and the earthquake has happened and he believes that all the prisoners under his care have fled. So what does he do? He picks up his sword because they were under his care and says, I'm going to kill myself out of shame, 
and the fact that I couldn't do my job. But Paul jumps in and stops him. Don't harm yourself. Jailer, don't do it. We're all still here. We all are still here. It's not just Paul and Silas who are still there. The other prisoners are still there as well. Those other prisoners, if you remember, they were listening to Paul and Silas singing. I believe those other prisoners' hearts were changed too because they were still there when the jailer was about ready to kill himself. So the jailer, after hearing this from Paul, says, wait a second, let me turn on all the lights. Give me some light. I need some light. So he gets lights, and he sees that the prisoners are still there. He turns to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. So Paul and Silas even got to share the gospel with the jailer that night, too. There's our climax. So on the other side of that climax, we have the falling action of the plot. And during the falling action, we start to see how our characters are different and how our characters have changed from when we were first introduced to them. I also think this falling action part contains our, a theme. And so I want to label this section, what was your jail? And I use the term was because remember, they're now different than they were before. So what was your jail? Starting with Paul and Silas, what was your jail? I think is pretty obvious. It was a literal jail. They were in the innermost cell, reserved for high security inmates. Their freedom had been taken from them because of their faith and the proclamation of that faith. They were able to turn to God. They were singing and praying, and God caused an earthquake to release them from their physical shackles. So, Paul and Silas, what was your jail? It was a jail. Now, with Lydia, I want to ask her, what was your jail? Lydia's jail, I believe, is that she was an outsider. She had everything in life that you could have that could fulfill you. She had a job, she has a home, a pretty nice home, she has money, she has people surrounding her, yet she seemed to be looking for more. Her birth as a Greek kept her from being fully included in the Jewish community where she was attending prayer. So she's looking for something. She is at that place of prayer in a small community of Jews. She worshiped God, but she did it as an outsider. Even as a woman, she's on the outside. Until 
her change came. When she listened, the Lord opened her heart and she was baptized. She is no longer an outsider. She is a Christian now, which means she is now a member of the church family. For the slave girl, I ask her, what is your jail? She was owned. She was owned by men, and men who took advantage of her. She's not a woman even, she's a girl. She's possessed by a demonic spirit. She had no control of her life, her body, her soul. And she sought out Paul and Silas, like I said, who were proclaiming salvation. Because Paul exercised the spirit out of her, she could regain control of her mind. She became no use to the men. And I hope she regained control of herself, her being as well. I want to believe that she could now begin a new life. We know when Jesus exercised the men with the demon spirits, they rejoined the community. Maybe, we don't know because we don't know anything more about this girl, but maybe this slave girl, who's no longer a slave to the spirits, became a part of the community there as well. Maybe she even became part of the Philippian church. Now the jailer, what was his jail? I think his jail was fear, desperation, and despair. He had suicide on his mind. He saw his own death as a quick way out of shame. And he actually took action to follow through on that. He picked up his sword. He felt so much despair, desperation, and even depression that he was going to kill himself until Paul and Silas stopped him. Now, he is the one who put them in the innermost cell and fastened their shackles in the stocks. We see a big change that happens with him in his actions towards Paul and Silas. He changes from imprisoning them to hospitality and care. After hearing what Paul and Silas have to say about Jesus, he was not only baptized and and saved, but he cleansed Paul and Silas's wounds. He brought Paul and Silas to his, his own home. I don't know too many people who would do that with an ex-con. Um, but he brought them to his home and fed them. He started out with, with despair and desperation. And that was turned to joy. I am so glad we sang the song this morning that um, Lucas sang. I am no longer a slave to fear, 
for I am a child of God. That could have been something that the jailer was singing. Despair, depression, suicide, change to joy because he had to come to believe in God. And not just him, but his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. I even think the magistrates changed in this story as well. The magistrates are antagonists. What is your jail? And for them, I would answer power. They are the ones who had Paul and Silas stripped and beaten, thrown into jail. They were also the ones who had them released. And they had to become alarmed because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They, as Roman citizens, should not have been thrown into jail without a trial. The magistrates messed up. So they, I think, needed to be taken down from that power to some humility. Paul and Silas needed their innocence to be known as well. And Paul and Silas were not going away quietly. Therefore, the magistrates, in their now humbleness, needed to escort Paul and Silas from the jail. What this did by escorting them actually legitimized Paul and Silas. It declared Paul and Silas's innocence in front of the crowds and all of Philippi, which then has an impact on the future of Philippi and the church in Philippi itself. The character of God here, I think, showed up even though we don't see the hand itself, even to change the magistrate's mind. Which brings us to our final part of the story, the resolution. For our heroes, Paul and Silas's story comes full circle. After they left the prison, where did they go? They went to Lydia's house. Our story started with Lydia, and it actually only partially ends with Lydia. But instead of being at Lydia's house with just Lydia, like it had been at the beginning in her household, we read that Paul and Silas met with the brothers, which also includes sisters, at Lydia's house. And they encouraged them. When we see the term brothers and sisters here, it means fellow believers. Again, the term Christians were not used yet. So they called everybody brothers and sisters. And so Paul and Silas, while they were in jail, other people were hearing about Jesus, and I believe through Lydia and her household. 
Because when Paul and Silas come back to Lydia's house, they come back to brothers and sisters in Christ. They then are able to encourage and talk more with all those people who are now gathered at Lydia's house. And Paul and Silas, in their resolution of the story, get to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the town of Philippi. But I say our story only partially ends here because we know that not only did Paul and Silas proclaim in Philippi, but if we keep turning the page in our book of Acts, we see that they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica, where we get the Thessalonian letters, in Athens, in Berea, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Macedonia, and in Greece. That story and proclamation of Jesus Christ does not end with our passage in Acts. Paul, as we know, ends up taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And even to us. So, I'm going to leave you with some questions this morning as part of our application of this passage. If you were to tell your story, what's the setting of it? If you were to tell your story, who are the characters in your story? Who are the heroes? If you were to tell your story, what's the plot? What was your jail? Where were you before you had Jesus in your heart? And how did God show up in your story? How did you see God's hand throughout your life? And how did God show up in a big way in your story? And finally, if you were to tell your story, how are you different now, now that you have Christ? Where did you come from, and how are you different now? I think we all have a story to tell, and we can tell that story to anybody that we come across. We have the story here, and we all have it here. So I'm going to leave you with that. Go tell your story, because I know it's a good one.